so glad you could join us for mornings at YCBC today. We want to thank you for being a part of our online family and we hope that this message encourages you, blesses you and helps you grow in your walk with him. So let's get into the word. During worship, as, as Carl was introducing uh, that uh, song, the Waymaker song, which you know is one of my favourites, um, he, uh, when he was introducing that and he said... Uh, light in the darkness, and then he said, light in your darkness. I just felt, um, thank Carl for, for sharing that, um, wherever he's gone. Um, and, um, but yeah, I just felt personally that, that so much was just un, un lifted off me um, this morning. And um, so uh, I, this past week or so, I've been uh, just feeling quite tense um, without really having anything particularly that I was tense about and just feeling... Um, I guess, burdened the weight of the world on my shoulders. And, and so as Carl said that this morning, I just, just felt straight away just this whew, release um, and, and this undoing of, of so much of that. Um, so I was a bit messed up um, during worship this morning and a bit emotional. Um, and so uh, let's see how we go this morning. Uh, I'm going to pray not just for our, our time in the Word this morning, but for a number of things. And, and so um, as I'm praying, if, if God's got things on your heart that you, you want to offer up in prayer this morning, um, feel free to, to just take this as a time of prayer. God will hear my prayer even if you're praying something else at the same time. Um, he's that good. So Father, we, we come before you this morning as your church to pray. We thank you um, that Jacob is here amongst us this morning, that only a week ago uh, we were praying for his life to be spared and now he's here amongst us. We thank you that you are a way maker, you are a miracle worker, you are the light in the darkness. And so Father, I also thank you as we, we prayed last week as well for my father, we thank you that he is improving, we thank you that he is uh, home and so we pray Lord that he would... Uh, be given answers, Lord, to why what's happened to him has happened. We pray that you'd protect him, that you'd restore his uh, spirits in Jesus' name. Father, we pray for those here amongst our community that have been unwell. And as Deb mentioned this morning, her and Rachel having scans. Uh, Father, we pray for clarity and for answers and for direction with their treatment. Uh, Father, we pray that you would lift off of them all of the impacts of this autoimmune disease, Lord that they would be completely set free from, from pain and symptoms of that, Lord. Father, we pray for our community of Yas. We pray that uh, those who don't know you would find you and be found in you. We pray for the 6,000 plus, Lord, that are lost and without hope, without Jesus. We pray that you would call them home to you. Father, we pray that you would stir in our hearts a passion for the lost. And we pray that for all of the churches in Yas, Lord, we pray that you would stir a passion within us for the lost in our community. Father, we pray globally um, so many issues in our world, Lord, but we, we do pray that you would put an end to the coronavirus, that you would uh, safeguard uh, that from spreading any further, we pray that you would heal those who are infected with it. Father, we pray uh, that in the midst of panic and fear, you would be uh, bringing many people, even for the first time, into the peace that can be known in you. And Father, we pray for uh, other things in our world that 
uh, maybe get overlooked because they're not as, as, as uh, fear-inducing for those of us in comfortable circumstances. We pray for those who live in poverty, who uh, are at risk of dying from hunger, Lord. We pray that you would lift them out of their circumstances that in the midst of where they are, that you would transform their circumstances and that you would provide for them. And so, Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray. I pray that my meager offering this morning to you of seeking to explain to your people your word, I pray that your spirit would take it and make something of it. I pray that as is in this passage that we're going to get to this morning, that, that we're called not just to, to hear your word and go away unchanged or without any difference in our lives. Father, I pray this morning, I pray at every time, Lord, but I pray this morning that even more than any other morning that we would be transformed by your word. In Jesus' almighty name, amen. So get real, get real. Uh, sometimes there's a man at the end of that, get real, man. Um, that's what we're calling, what we're about to jump into for the next five weeks with a little break with Uncle Nate in the midst of there. Get real. Uh, real is a word that means actually existing. If something's real... It actually exists. It also means it's not imagined. It doesn't just exist in your imagination. It's, it's not something that's imagined. It's tangible. It's real. It's not artificial. Something that's real is the real thing. It's not a fake. It's not artificial. It's, it's not a forgery. It's not an imitation. It's genuine and authentic. And so over the next five weeks, that's, that's what we're going to be diving into. We're going to be diving into getting real, about being genuine and authentic in our faith. We're going to be exploring the book of James, which Russ began reading for us this morning. We're going to look at a chapter each week, but I thought it wouldn't be fair to get Russell to read a whole chapter, so we, we just read that introductory passage. But we're going to be into the book of James. And, and so James begins his letter saying this. He says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered amongst the nations, greetings. This is one of the briefest introductions to any of the letters. And after this brief introduction, James runs into five chapters of calling the church to get real. To be genuine and authentic in our faith. To not have an imagined faith. To not have a, a fake faith. To not have an imitation of faith. To have a faith that actually exists. This is James, he introduces himself, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so this James, or Jacob, who's his name in, in the Greek, but uh, we struggle with those kind of things in English, so we end up calling them James or John, but Jacob or Jacob in Hebrew, he was actually the brother of Jesus. 
or the half-brother, some people say, because his father was actually Joseph rather than the Holy Spirit. And so James was one of the, the brothers of Jesus that mocked him. That, that taunted him to go to Jerusalem if you want to be a big deal in this religious landscape. He, he was one of Mary's family who, who came to Jesus early in his ministry and, and tried to get him away from the crowds because they thought he'd gone crazy. And so you've got to think, what's got to happen for someone to then, a few years later, be calling their brother the Lord... That word in Jewish thought was connected with Yahweh, the Creator God. He's calling his brother, who he grew up with, Yahweh, Jesus, that's his name, the Messiah. Something special has to have happened for James. Maybe it was something about his brother being crucified and raising to to new life and and seeing the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, but... But that's who James is. James is also uh, one of the most significant leaders in the early Jerusalem church. And so we see when Paul is having some disagreement with some people about what the place of the the Jewish law has in the life of Gentile Christianity, uh, he goes to uh, the Jerusalem church and it's James who's the one that says, it seems good to us in the Holy Spirit not to require anything more of Gentile believers but these things. So James was a leader in the church. James was also a martyr. Not only did he call Jesus Christ, not only did he call his brother both God and the Messiah, he died for that belief. Uh, Before the fall of Jerusalem, uh, when when Rome had enough of these Jewish upstarts and came and overthrew it, uh, there was a moment where the religious, the Jewish religious leaders were concerned about the influence this man James from from Galilee was having, uh, leading so many people astray from what they saw as the authentic Jewish faith, saying that this guy who was crucified and raised to life, Jesus, was the Messiah. And so they said, stand on top of the temple and publicly declare that Jesus is not the Christ. James stood on top of the temple, this is what history has it, and declared boldly and with great power that Jesus was the Lord and the Messiah. And so they threw him off the top of the temple and he wasn't killed by that, so they clubbed him to death. As he prayed that God would forgive them for what they were doing. And so this is James. He, he has a little bit of street cred when it comes to getting real in faith. He's walked the journey of rejecting Jesus, but then seeing that Jesus is in fact the Lord Jesus Christ. He's gotten real. He's walked the journey of trials and persecution. He's walked the journey of losing his life for his faith. He has some street cred when it comes to getting real. And so James doesn't, not saying the other letters with longer introductions waste time, but but James doesn't waste time with a lengthy introduction. He gets straight to it. Greetings, now let's go. And so he starts his, his message by speaking of the joy of trials. He says, Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. The word for trials means something unwanted and unexpected. 
something negative. And so James says, consider it pure joy. The word for joy here means complete and overflowing, the, the most full of joy you could possibly be. That's what James says to the brothers and sisters in Christ to, to consider unwanted and negative experiences of every kind. And if we're familiar with the Scriptures, we're familiar with this kind of line of thinking, that, that, that trials and persecution, we should consider them joy. But, but because we're familiar with that, we don't perhaps realise how counter to our culture and society this word is. We live in a society obsessed with the elimination of discomfort, not to mention real trials or persecution. If, you, if you're not convinced of that, you only need to look at the, the place that thermostats have gotten to. Are you a 22 degrees person or a 23.5 degrees person? Um, our, our big car, our, our flash car, our 10-year-old Ford Territory, it is so impressive that if Christy and I have slight differences of opinion about what's the perfect temperature, she can be at 22 and I can be at 23.5. It's not actually a conversation we have a, have a lot, to be honest. We, we're fairly mutual about uh, in summer, blasting with cold. But so much so, I, I, we kind of have these thoughts of how did people live 50 years ago without air conditioning? Was, you know, climate change aside, we're still only talking a few degrees there. Uh, people still had 40 degree days. How did they do it? I don't even want to go outside on a 40-degree day. I want to sit in front of the air conditioner. Our car isn't this fancy, but I know that some don't just have like climate control zones. Some of them, the seat warms up. Is that true, Steve? Have you got any on the market that sell heated seats? So consider it pure joy when your seat is cold, when you sit in it, perhaps. And so we live in this culture... And comfort is okay, you know. Air conditioning is great, praise the Lord for it. I'm not telling you to sell your air conditioners. But we need to recognise that we live in a culture and society that is so obsessed with the elimination of all discomfort. We don't realise how significantly we've been conditioned by that. And so when it comes to our faith, we, we don't realise how risk-averse our faith is. We don't realise how, how this desire to eliminate discomfort leaches into our faith and so we don't want to take our faith to places or the expression of our faith to places that make us uncomfortable. Let alone real trials and persecution. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to Timothy, he's speaking about his own life and, and the trials and persecutions he faced and the, and the troubles he's faced. And he said, yet the Lord delivered us from them all. From them all. And so we have this confidence uh, that when we do face trials and persecutions, the Lord will deliver us. But then he says this in 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So persecution 
and trial is part and parcel of what it means to, to be a follower of Jesus. There's so much blessing. I wouldn't trade it for the world. It's, it's not like it's a horrible life all of the time. But, but Paul wants us to know, James wants us to know, every, in fact, New Testament writer speaks of the trials, the persecution involved in following Jesus. And so if we're not experiencing trials in our faith, if we're not experiencing uh, persecution, and this isn't just about persecution, this word from James, it's about trials of any kind. And and some of those trials are in the natural, some of them are in the spiritual, that this is trials of any kind. But if we're not experiencing any of that, if we're not experiencing in our life any opposition to our faith, then we shouldn't feel any guilt and shame, but we should ask ourselves, well, if not, why not? Is it maybe sometimes that we're living a discomfort-averse faith? That we're avoiding, as we're conditioned by the world, to avoid trials, persecution? Are, Are we putting our faith out there? Are we sharing Jesus at all with people? And so James says... Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I believe this is not just a word of encouragement for those in the midst of trial, because it is that, but I believe it's a word of encouragement for those of us who who are at risk of shrinking back, of stepping away, of moving into a comfortable, risk-averse, my faith is private and no one gets to hear about it, I'm going to hide over here and worship Jesus in my little corner. It's a word of encouragement, not just to those in the midst of trial, but all of us to step up into our faith and get real. Consider it pure joy, he says. Well, if I was to consider something pure joy, then, then I might put myself in a place where I would experience that joy somewhat more frequently than I would do right now. But he doesn't say consider it pure joy Without any reason, he says, he goes on, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the trial, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And so, so often preaching from Paul's letters, I nearly said Paul. James wants us to be reminded that we already know this. When our faith is tested, it, it refines our faith. And it produces perseverance. You cannot have perseverance without testing. You cannot grow in physical endurance without pushing the limit of your current endurance so that your body reacts to that and enables you to go further next time. You cannot grow in your perseverance in faith unless your current level of endurance or perseverance is tested so that you can go further. A lot of uh, behavioural research on what it means to succeed in life uh, now shows that grit or the ability to persevere is one of the most significant factors in success in life. Not intelligence. It's a factor. Thank God it's not the biggest factor. Grit, perseverance is. And so James is saying to us, unless you face trials in your life and in your faith, then you can't possibly develop the thing which is the most predictive factor of you succeeding. 
And so you should consider it pure joy. But, but it doesn't end there. He goes on to say that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And then he says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Perseverance, born out by trial, produces in us a maturity, a completeness in our faith. You can't be mature in faith unless your faith has faced trials. And so if we avoid trials, if we avoid persecution and opposition, if, if we avoid places of discomfort in our life and faith, then what we are doing is avoiding perseverance and avoiding maturity. It's the work of perseverance in our life to produce maturity. James goes on. In verse 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. And so James isn't, like this is true of all circumstances, but he's still talking about trials and persecution and opposition and, and that unwanted negative stuff here. We know that because, as we'll see in a moment, as Russell read in verse 12, we realize, hey, he's still talking about trials. And so Paul, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. And so we should rejoice in trials, we should consider them pure joy, because if we don't know what to do, if we don't know what this is about, if we, if we don't have wisdom for this circumstance, he said, we can ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. If you don't know what to do in the trial. And that's so often the experience of, of persecution, of trial, of opposition, of negative circumstances is this simple, I just don't know what to do. We spoke last year about when we don't know what to do, we keep our eyes on you. We keep our eyes on God. And so if we ask God, He'll give us wisdom. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. The word for doubt here means wavering or vacillating, going back and forth. And so the idea... Uh, we might have is of this, of like he's coming to God and asking for wisdom and then I'll just check, check the star signs over here, what's the star sign saying, what's, what's, you know, what's you know, my friend Bill saying and, and not that it's not good to ask your friends what you should do. But, but So this idea of not doubting isn't just, I'm not sure if I have enough faith for God to give me wisdom, it's, it's this idea of, of hedging our bets. Of running around. And so the thrust of what James is saying is in the midst of trial, if you're not sure what to do, if you don't know what to do, ask God and He'll give you wisdom. And so we consider it pure joy because it tests and refines our faith and produces perseverance. We consider trials pure joy because that perseverance produces uh, maturity and completeness in our faith. We consider it pure joy because if we don't know what to do in our circumstance, then, then God will give us wisdom. And we also consider it pure joy because our current circumstances are not the fullness of our hope. And so James goes on to say in verse 9 to 11, he says, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position." So if your present material circumstances are humble, in other words, if you are struggling with your present circumstances, 
Don't dwell on that. Take pride in your high position. As elsewhere in Scripture, it says, you are seated with Christ in heavenly realms. You, you are in Jesus. You have a high position. Your, your present material circumstances are not the fullness of your hope. And then he says, he has a little bit more to say of believers, of people who are rich. He says, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation or humble position. And so if you're doing really well uh, materially or financially or in life at the moment, then don't pin your hopes on that. Instead, pin your hopes on, on the humble position that you have because we're all humble before the Lord. We all have a low position, but have been raised up by Christ. As later on in James, uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, the Apostle James, Paul stuck in my head. James says, humble yourself before the Lord and He will lift you up. And so that's what James is encouraging the wealthy, the well-off here to do, is to not pin their hopes on their, on their good circumstances, but to pin their hopes on their humility before the Lord so that He lifts you up. And to round off this thought in James 1.12, he says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. He begins this thought by saying, Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, when you face trials of any kind. And then he says, Blessed, or we could translate that word, happy, is the one who perseveres under trial because... Having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love Him. And so we can consider it pure joy in the midst of trial because we know that we have a hope of not just this life but of eternal life. That we will be crowned with life by Jesus having persevered the trials, the unwanted and negative circumstances of this life. And so James calls for us, for the brothers and sisters, as he refers to us, to get real in our faith. He calls for us to get real in the way of considering trials and opposition and persecution and pure joy. Because we live, as they did then, in the midst of a temptation to avoid every form of discomfort. And so James is saying to us, to you and to me, don't live a discomfort, risk-averse faith. Because what we're really avoiding is maturity in faith. And so I know for me that means not being an angry, loudmouth, you know, street corner megaphone preacher, you know, turn or burn. In that sense, I know that's, that's not what God's calling me to do. It doesn't mean being obnoxious about my faith. But it does mean, for me, and perhaps it means this for you, taking a little bit of a step out from comfort into boldness with my faith. To actually, perhaps, put myself in positions more op often where I may face opposition. 
not running down the street, persecute me, persecute me, but, but just simply being more bold in the outward expression and the sharing of my faith and not fearing but actually considering the opposition that may come, the trials that may come, the persecution that may come and, and to be honest, the kind of persecution we face in this country is nothing to be super afraid of anyway. But to consider those things pure joy. To get real. From here, as we, as we go on beyond what Russell read, it, it seems that James shifts his focus. He, he says, when tempted, no one should say to God, say, God is tempting me. It seems that he's finished with trial and now he's talking about temptation, but he's actually continuing the same thought because in the original Greek, trial and temptation come from the same basic Greek word. And so he's continuing the thought about trial, but now he's talking about the trial of temptation. So we may not all face persecution every day. We may not all face negative circumstances every day, but every day we face the trial of temptation. And so he says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does God, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and are enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. And so Paul, James is touching on here how quick we are to blame others for our own sin, how quick I was to blame my friends that have recommended Uncle Nath for anything that may happen. Not my fault, their fault. God's fault. James is saying, don't put temptation on God's doorstep. We, we see it in Scripture. The moment sin entered human existence and God says to Adam, what have you done? He says, well, if you hadn't put this woman here, I wouldn't have sinned. She, she tempted me, you made her, so it's kind of your fault, God. So God looks at, at Eve and Eve says, whoa, 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 whoa. Didn't you create everything? Well, this serpent... Led me astray, this serpent that you created, God. So it's, it's, it's kind of your fault. We see it in our, in our own existence. If, if this temptation hadn't been put before me, then I would not have sinned. Honest, I was Googling for something else and that website came up. God created everything, including, you know, man who made computers, who, like, maybe there's a few more steps from serpent to God with, with the computer screen, but, but can I really own that sin because, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't looking for that website, it just came up when I, I, was, I was looking for what's on at church this Sunday. Life Church in America... Um, for a season had Google ads that w they would come up as the top thing when someone searched for pornography in the area. Uh, and, and the idea was they didn't want people who were looking for a church, they wanted people who were looking for porn. And if, if the church comes up as your top search thing, maybe someone will think, oh, God's watching, I better go to church. 
can work both ways. But we're so quick to say, it's not really my fault. I mean, they just left it lying there. I, I, I know it wasn't mine, but, you know, can I really be blamed for just kind of picking it up and putting it in my pocket? Because I kind of needed a coffee in that $5, you know, though I know it wasn't mine, and fell on the ground mysteriously after Abraham walked past. And we're so quick to blame others. And so James is saying we should not. James tells us, get real. He says, the temptation to sin comes from your own and my own evil desires. And then what he says next is really interesting because he says, your desire is what leads to the temptation. And it's that temptation, if, if we don't resist the temptation, it's that temptation that leads to sin and sin, fully grown, leads to death. Sometimes physically, literal death. Sometimes, as it did for Adam and Eve, they didn't die that day, but death entered our experience. Decay entered our experience. And so it's really interesting because this provides a dark mirror, an opposite reflection of what, what trials do in our life. Trials produce perseverance, and perseverance, when its work is fully borne out, produces maturity and completeness. The opposite of death, it builds up. Temptation not resisted produces sin, which fully grown, fully mature sin produces death. And so James is painting in a sense when we're facing trials and temptation, even if that temptation is to avoid trials, he's painting a two options for us to seek to pursue. If we resist the trial of temptation, if we persevere in it, then maturity is produced. If we give in to it, if we, if, we, if we give in to the temptation to sin, which isn't God's fault, it's my fault, it comes from within me, if we give in to it, it produces death in my life. Decay. The opposite of maturity. The opposite of fullness. And so we may not face persecution every day, but we face the trial of temptation every day. James goes on to say, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He's saying God's not giving you good things one day and tempting you to sin and die the next. Good things come from God, not temptation to evil. And he chose to give birth to, through, his, through the word of truth, that's the gospel, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. He's saying in this this kind of two pathways we can take, we can choose to be the first fruits of a new way of life. We can choose to live in the fullness of what it means to live out the gospel. And so in terms of applying this point, in terms of, of getting real... James gives us some application points, which is always great for a preacher when the biblical writer gives you the application points. It makes life easy. He says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. So in light of that temptation that lives within us, he says, take note of this. Everyone should be 
quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Then he says, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. And so James is saying, in light of knowing, in light of the truth that it's not God that tempts us, it's the the desires within us that lead us into temptation, he says, get rid of all moral filth. Get rid of that in your life that provides a stumbling block that may lead you into sin. Get, Get rid of it. Get rid of those magazines. Get rid of those things that tempt you. If the website thing is an issue, then put website blocking on your own computer so that you cannot get to those things. Get rid of that which leads you into sin in your life and accept the Word of God. James is urging the brothers and sisters to get real when it comes to seeking to live a holy life. See, we're not saved by our righteous living. We're saved by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. But we are called to righteous living. In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews in in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4 says, My dear brothers and sisters, you've not resisted yet to the point of shedding blood in your battle against sin. And so we're called to get real and consider trials are pure joy we're called to get real about the place of temptation and sin in our life and and in doing so get real about seeking to live a holy and righteous life that honors god and and so one of the connection points of that for, for james is to accept the word of god humbly but for james this isn't just a yeah i've got a bible on my shelf that's not what accepting the Word of God looks like for him. It's, it's not a passive thing. See, for James, accepting the Word of God isn't, isn't actually complete, even if you read it for five hours every day, even if you don't miss a sermon on Sunday. But for James, accepting the Word of God is, isn't finished at that point. In James 1.22, he says, Do not merely listen to the word or do not merely read the word and so deceive yourself do what it says if we just listen if we just read and don't do james is saying we're kidding ourselves whatever our faith is if if it's only comprised and 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 I'm the one who's often saying, get into the Word, get in the Word. And and I say it again, get into God's Word. But if getting into God's Word is just a reading, it's just a hearing, that doesn't lead to any kind of action. If if it doesn't lead to doing, then then our faith is not real. We're kidding ourselves. It's a deception. I love these kind of phrases in Scripture because it reminds me that I'm not kidding anyone else says you deceive yourself.
We need to do what the Word says. In, in Matthew 7, 24, uh, Jesus talks about it's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He's just spoken to the people and, and He says, those who uh, hear My words and put them into practice are those who build their life upon the rock. So even for Jesus, it, it was never just about hearing. It, it was never just about knowing the Word. It was never just about listening. It was never just about that, as important as that is, it's it's about putting into action the Word. Put them into practice. And so our lives should be changed when we read it. Something should shift when we read God's Word. It should change our behaviour. It should spark within us the doing of things that we never once did. It it should spark within us the stop doing of things that we used to do and it should spark within us the keep doing of other things. I sometimes joke, but it's only half a joke, and this isn't because I consider myself a great preacher, but sometimes joke when we're talking about something, and oh, I preached about that a couple of years ago. Why are we still having an issue with that thing? It's only half a joke, and I say this not because I consider myself a great preacher, but, but we dug into God's Word about that thing, and I know we're on a journey, we struggle. I'm not suggesting I am in any way perfect, because the joke's also pointed at me. I've read this thing cover to cover several times. I should be a bit more different than I am right now. There should be sin in my life that is no longer an issue, but it still is. Sorry, there shouldn't be sin in my life that's no longer an issue. And so James says, if we, if we hear it or listen or read it and don't do, we're like someone who looks at a mirror and if there's anyone in the baby room, it's going to be a little bit freaky, but it's like someone looking at a mirror, James says, and having a good look and then going away and completely forgetting what they saw. What's the point in looking in a mirror if you forget straight away what you look like? See, there's two angles to this. If you look in a mirror and you look horrible, your beard's all like, and the saliva's kind of globbed in it over here, and it's bending up here, and you've got bed hair, and you look in the mirror, and then you walk away, and forget about it and do nothing about that, what was the point? If you look ugly and do nothing about it, some of us have only got so much to work with, this is the best I could do. (laughs) What's the point of even looking if you don't do anything about your appearance? James is saying, what's the point of even reading or listening or hearing God's Word if you don't do anything about that which needs change in your life? But, But it's also true in the aspect of if you look... You think, oh, I'm looking good. If you look and see, I am created in the image of God. If you look and see, Jesus is my saviour and he's rescued me and he calls me holy and blameless and spotless because of his blood. If we look into the word and see that and go away and forget that, then what's the point? If you look in the mirror and you think, I'm looking good today and go away and forget about it and your confidence is on the ground, you forget about what you saw then what's the point of looking? 
if we look at God's Word and, and see who we are in Christ Jesus, if we see that we are seated in heavenly realms with our Saviour, if we see that the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in me, but I go away and forget all about that and live as if I'm nothing, then what was the point? And so James says, don't just listen. Don't just read. Do. Put it into practice. He goes on to give us, and we're going to finish with these verses, he gives us these examples. He says, those who consider themselves religious and yet not, do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves. And so James, in a couple chapters' time, is going to talk a lot more about the tongue. Jesus himself spoke about out of the mouth flow the things of the heart. And so James is saying, if you go through these religious practices... If you read the Bible, if you pray, if you show up at church, which are all fantastic things to do, but if you do those and it has no impact on your tongue, if it has no impact on what flows out of your life, then you're kidding yourself. It's not real. And it's worthless. And so it says, religion that our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And so I would suggest to you this morning that that literally means to look after widows and orphans in their distress. But it also means so much more. It's, it's one of these biblical touchstone phrases when, when it talks about orphans and widows in their distress. It's, it's like a litmus test for, for the kind of behaviour that God's looking for. In the Old Testament prophets, the, the people of God were critiqued because you know, they did all the church stuff. They showed up at the temple. They did the sacrifices. They praised God with their lips, but, but they had no heart or concern for the poor. And so, yes, it means do justice. It means look after the vulnerable. But, but it means live a life that is shaped by God's Word. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That does not mean we take ourselves out of it. It means that we're in it, but not polluted by it. In a sense, we have, and we've seen lots of these on the TV with the coronavirus at the moment, but we have a spiritual hazmat suit. If you want to read more about it, read Ephesians 6, the armour of God. That's our spiritual hazmat suit. We're called to be in the world but not shaped by its desire to avoid any kind of discomfort. We're called to be in the world, but not shaped by its wall. If you feel like doing it, then do it. We're called to be in the world, but consider trials pure joy. We're called to be in the world, but consider temptation not something that we're going to indulge, but to endure the trial of temptation. We're called to be in the world and not shaped by it, but instead shaped by God's word, not just in our thoughts, but in our actions. We essentially have one, jo one job. Do what God's word says. In my devotional reading practice, uh, I use an acronym called SOAP. It's S-O-A-P. S stands for Scripture. 
O stands for observation. So I write down one scripture from my reading, I write down an observation for it, but A, P stands for prayer, A stands for application. And, and so what, I, I didn't invent this, it, it comes from a book, but, but what that forces me to do is to think, what is going to be different because I've read this word today? Otherwise, I would just read for intellectual fulfilment and theological inspiration. The A, the application, causes me to think, what is going to change? And so the Bible's told us, particularly the New Testament, for those of us that are followers of Jesus, it's told us a whole bunch of things. And, and, and so often we might be like, what does God want me to do? Well, we can start here. Look after orphans and widows. And keep yourself from being polluted from the world. But we can also do what Jesus said, make disciples. And I don't mean also, I mean as well as. We can heal the sick, we can love our neighbour. We can proclaim the good news. We've been given much instruction and so, yes, as James says, we ask God for wisdom but we're not short of a to-do list from God's Word. And so James calls for us to get real. And so I want to invite us as a church, including myself, and suggest it's time for us to get real. That's not a suggestion that what we have been and where we have been is fake or unreal. But I know in my life that there's so much more space for me to get more real. In May, we're going to be talking about our, our, our kind of local mission vision for each one to reach one. Uh, and the phrase we're going to be talking about that is faith-focused forwards. And, and that begins with faith because our, our hopes and our dreams and our vision to see some of that 6,000 plus one for Jesus begins right here with my faith. It begins right there with you and your faith. Our, our hope for reaching the lost begins with us getting real. Getting real about our trials and considering them pure joy. Getting real about the trial of temptation and sin and getting rid of the moral filth from our life. It means getting real about doing the Word, about living it out. It means getting real about faith. And so if you're here this morning, if you're, if you're a kind of a part of the church family, if you come in and you go out and, and, and you're with us, but, but you've never had a moment in your life where you've gone, actually, I... I, I, I want to make this real for me. I, I want to get real and commit my life to Jesus. I, I, I've kind of been following along, but, but I haven't had that moment for myself where I've drawn the line in the sand and I've stepped over and said, I am giving this, all of this, all of me to Jesus. Then I want to encourage you this morning to take that step. I'm going to pray. I pray and I encourage all of us to pray in our hearts along with me. 
Um, and if it's for you the first time of praying a prayer like this, then I'd love to speak to you about that afterwards. Father, James writes a challenging word for us. And so this morning I pray that we would receive the challenge to get real, not with guilt and shame and condemnation, because we know that is not from you. But I pray also that we wouldn't sidestep the challenge that James issues us in your word. And so, Father, I pray that you would enable us by your Holy Spirit to get real. To not live an imitation faith. To not live a faith that exists only in our mind and isn't lived out in practice. To not live a faith that crumbles at the first sign of temptation. Help us to get real. And so, Father, I pray, and if this is your first time making this commitment, I just encourage you to pray in your heart along. I pray to you and I say to you, Father, have my life. I'm a sinner and not worthy to be called your child, but I thank you for the cross of Jesus that has washed me clean. And so now I want to get real about my faith and commit my life to you. I am yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. As you head back into your week, we want to encourage you to stay in his word, stay in his love, and stay strong in your faith. Don't forget to keep up to date with what's happening via Facebook, Instagram, or via our website at ycbc.church. See you soon.